Thanks. I take your Bibles if you would. Get it ready. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to do very little review from last week. Uh, I've changed my opening for 10 times, but I have so much to talk about. Uh, Jesus is kind of a big thing to talk about. You, you know what I mean? So uh, here we go. If you, uh, to, to kind of pick up and to catch up where I'm going to be picking up from today, uh, go online. You can listen to it or uh, order a CD, whatever you'd like to do. It says this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We've got this picture here, kind of of the cosmos, and we... Uh, Anthony did a wonderful job of just kind of illustrating that all of a sudden God spoke. Jesus Christ spoke it into existence, Hebrews 1.3 tells us. It's important that we understand Jesus was preexistent. He transcends time. He was born in Bethlehem, but he has been everywhere all time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the beginning and the end, the Bible says, the Alpha and the Omega. And you go to Genesis chapter 3. This is why God created the heavens and the earth. It says this in man, verse 8, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Then man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God established us for relationship. That's our purpose, is that we could experience his love and we could love him and choose him back. And we talked about Leviticus chapter 16 where we fast forward and we see God's movement because after Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, what did he do? He literally killed an animal, took the skins and put it on Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness and their shame and expelled them from the garden. And then Leviticus 16, we talked about the two goats that the high priest would, one would be slaughtered. It was a day of atonement, which literally means one was set out into the into the wilderness just to be away from the people as the sins were upon them. We see that the word atonement, one of the words, one of the key thoughts out of it is at one moment, at one moment with God, we're made right. So I want to pick it up today and we talked about the creation of a home. We talked about the loss of a home. Now I want to talk today about Jesus coming to our home. And we see this, what did he come to do? Well, this towel and basin, we see it's a picture from John chapter 13. But we also understand that the purpose of Jesus is coming. His mission is found in two key scriptures. Mark 10, uh, Mark 10 verse 45 says this, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve humanity, to give himself to serve them. And then Luke chapter 19, verse 10, makes it very clear his mission, his ultimate purpose. He says he came to seek and to save the lost. The picture's fitting because as he did this for his disciples, as he served them and saved them, he does the same thing for all of humanity that respond. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and he took up residence among us. Now that word residence, as Jesus arrives on the scene and takes residence with slash among us. The, that word there uh, means dwelt. In some translation, it means to encamp, or literally from the Old Testament word to tabernacle. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, remember, the tabernacle re represented the presence of God going with his people. 
and it was covered with animal skins. It was very plain on the outside. But the interior of the tabernacle was adorned with gold and silver, fine embroidery, precious stones. Why? To display the glory of God that was found inside of God. I find it interesting that Jesus comes as a man. See, when Jesus comes as a man, he's ordinary looking. There's really nothing about him that would have stood out. As a matter of fact, it says that Judas had to identify him to the Roman soldiers with a kiss because he came in simplicity as a baby born into a family, lived in this home. Why? For a few reasons. First of all, though, remember, uh, this whole motif, to be with us, to make his home with us. See, he came, first of all, to save us. Now, if you want to picture we see the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. He came to die on the cross. Put in the tomb, resurrected after the third day, raised in glory. Without the resurrection, really the cross would have meant nothing. But he becomes our Lamb of God. John 1.29, the one that was sacrificed, the sinless one who gave his life for us, that we begin to see that motif going throughout all of the Old Testament, doing one thing, pointing forward to the day when the Lamb of God would appear. You'll see there in your notes, Matthew 1.21 and 23 says this, she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus, Jesus Christos, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. That's everything of the Old Testament is built to climax and culminate in Jesus Christ of the New Testament. It says, the virgin will be with a child, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God, again, with us. Again, God's purpose is to save us and to be with us. We needed someone to atone for our sins, and Jesus comes as the atonement of God. Why? So that we could be at one in a moment with God. At one with. Jesus came to fulfill that. It says in 1 John 2, 1, that he is literally our advocate, our defense person, who stands before the accusations of the enemy who wants to put us down and always bring forth our failures. But he's kind of like Perry Mason, man. He never loses. He stands before the Father, and he says, that's my boy. I don't care what the enemy says. This is my girl. I know that she's fouled up, failed, and messed up, but I'm standing here for them. I am their advocate. Why? Because it's all based on what he has done, loved ones, not what we've done. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had that have gone something like this. I can't do it anymore. I can't live up to what a Christian is supposed to be. All my life, people have told me that I had to do this and this and this in order to be accepted. I thought Jesus was supposed to bring me freedom. <laughs> but instead, uh, he becomes just a more demanding taskmaster. In fact, he's probably the worst of them all. Have you ever felt like that? See, that conversation underscores that Christian moral teaching and living is both similar to but very different from other moral and ethical religious systems that are available throughout history and in our world today. In the book, 
the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis, it shows how the major religions agree on certain moral absolutes. There are things we all agree on. So we ask, well, what's the big deal then about being moral? Why be moral? Well, because of this. Other religions say that we do it to find God. See, Christianity says it differently. We do it because God has found you. God has found each one of us. The Christian gospel is we are not saved by moral living or right living or do good living. We are saved for it, to begin to live it out. We're the only system of faith and belief that, number one, has a, has a, a leader that says they were, they were born, they died, and they rose again, but we're also the only system that says that grace is the way to eternal life. See, a lot of talks and sermons tell people how to say no to immorality or just, just say no. See, often the reasons are what? Well, you know, it's, it's against the Bible. Or, you know, it's going to hurt you. Or it's against Christian principles. Or, you know, your sins will find you out. And all of those things, loved ones, are true. But I believe they become inadequate motivators, secondary responses to what it's really all about. Jesus said, I'm going to save people from their sins. I'm going to give them a grace to be able to experience what I want to give them. Unmerited favor. See, the book of Titus says this. That it's only the grace of God, Titus says, that teaches us to say no. See, it's not about willpower. It's about when you get this revelation of Jesus Christ and the grace that he has given you. Guess what? That's what will begin to teach you to say no. Grace, when you understand the manifold blessing and glory of it, begins to come upon your life and grace begins to argue with you. And you know what it's going to tell you? It's going to say something like this. You know what? You're not living as though you're really loved. You're not living as the child that God has accepted you and brought you into relationship to be. And it's not because he's ever going to abandon you that you should be holy. It's because of the inestimable cost that Jesus paid and the promise that he says, I will never, ever leave you. And when, loved ones, when we begin to understand that and we begin to talk about being saved from our sins, guess what? The issue isn't, okay, I've got to check this off and not do this. It's because, no, I want to live in the glory presence of Jesus Christ. So he came to save us. And, and then he, he came to be with us. That is one of the things, one of the key words you're going to see through all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that are in your notes is the word with. He came to be with us. Why? Because he wants to show us Father God. I'm convinced one of the most powerful pathways to growing in Jesus or our faith is to live like him. Well, to live like him, what does that mean? It means a couple of things. That we become, well, we're, we're willing to serve. Don a, don a towel of the servant and begin to dip from the basin to serve others. To lay our life down for other people just like Jesus did. But I want you to think of something with me, loved ones. It, it, it is possible to be so involved with doing for him 
that we allow our identity to be in serving him and we lose sight of the joy of being at home with him. There are some here today that you're probably not experiencing a lot of joy in Jesus. And it's because you're doing. You're doing, doing, doing. Because you're still trying to earn the favor of the Father. Now there's others of you that aren't doing anything. And you wonder why you don't have any joy. It's because you're not on a pathway of growth. And sometimes we as people, don't we? We kind of go into extremes. Somewhere in the middle, there is the pathway and the blessing of doing and serving our God for what he's done for us that motivates us. But then there's others of us that we're really caught up in doing. See, one of the classic examples of this is in one of Jesus' most famous stories. It's about a son that runs away from his father and his home. But can I tell you, when Jesus told it, he's really saying, this is the human race on the run from God, rebelling against the living God. And he begins to paint this powerful picture of the father who is waiting at home in compassion for the son to return. See, Jesus was always painting a picture of who he was in light of who the Father was. Because in John chapter 14, verses 7 through 11, he's talking to the disciples and specifically Peter. And he says to him, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he wanted to come to not be afraid of this God that's up there. Everybody thinks he's got these bony fingers pointing at us, how bad we are. But no, he's this compassionate, loving God that will challenge the socks off us. But he does it with a compassion and love and grace. And so this picture that he paints of the father is he's waiting at the home for this rebellious son to come home. Now remember the rebellious prodigal son is out there doing the wine, women, and song thing and doing his own thing. And he finally returns home and the father runs out to greet him. We know this story. Sometimes we forget though about this other rascal. We call him the older brother. And see, this is where so many people begin to move in their faith. And we begin to feel good because we're not the, we're not the rebel. You know, we're not the kid that ran away and went out and wasted everything on wine with him and so, women and song. And so we get proud. And we begin to think that maybe we're just a little bit better. But the older son, he had a very religious orientation. And he didn't realize the ultimate goal of his father was simply to be with him, to love him, to take care of him, and to be a blessing to him. He missed it. And so when the younger brother comes home, he's ticked. And this is what he says to his father in Luke chapter 15. See, his identity is what he had done the father. And he says this, I served you. I've never transgressed you. What's he saying? I did it right, dad. Come on. I did all the good things that you wanted. Oh, no. No, he didn't. Because this is the father's response in chapter 15 of Luke, verse 31 and 32. And the father said to him, son, you are always 
with me. All that is mine is yours, and it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. Do you catch the heart of the Father? Jesus tells this story so we would see the heart of the Father. He wants to be with us. The Father was all about being with, being at home with his sons. And that's our Heavenly Father today, loved ones. Jesus came to make us at home with our Father. And and I want to challenge two people here, two sets of people, that if you're not experiencing joy with the Father and with Jesus, regardless of what's going on in your life, maybe it's because your relationship is tied to your identity of doing for him and you have forgot how to live with him and be at home with him. And then maybe some of you others, maybe it's time that you start moving on this pathway of growth to begin to serve. Because that's what Jesus came to do. But in the process, he never lost his identity. He was always with the Father. See, how does God view you, do you think? This is the question I'm asking myself. How does God view me? What, what are my thoughts when I say that? What comes to my mind? What does God say? What does he think about Terry? What would you say he thinks about you? If you feel like you've got to do more, 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 you're probably living in that arena of your identity is in doing. God says, slow down. I want to be with you. See, we try so hard to be perfect, don't we? We can't do it. It won't happen. It wears us out. It leads to all these religious works and thinking that burn us out, burn us up, and eventually begins to hurt others because we get ticked because everybody else isn't working as hard as we are and doing what they should be doing. Jesus, who's perfect, will perfect each one of us. He says in John 15, 5, he says, I want you to abide in me. The word abide there simply means what? To be at home with. Isn't it amazing? Every, so much scripture just says, I just want to be with you. And he says, that's how you'll begin to bear fruit and be transformed. Well, he also came to destroy the works of the enemy. The message and the purpose of the cross is that Jesus came to pay the price for our sins and to take them and remove them from us. So we no longer have to live in the guilt and under the penalty and the pressure of carrying that stuff around. When we come to Jesus Christ, they're forgiven, they're removed. But it also says that he came to destroy the works of the enemy of our soul. 1 John 3, 8 says this, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, never forget that. See, in destroying the works of the devil, he, well, he destroyed the power of sin. He destroyed the power of the enemy that wants to entangle us, wants to take us down, to compromise our ability to live for him and ultimately impact the world that Jesus said, I came to serve and to seek and to save. Because see, that's our mission now. We are the church out there. It is not, friends, about going to church. This is the place we come, celebrate, grow, but ultimately our goal is to go out there. Our goal is not simply to get to heaven. Yeah, it's, it's to bring heaven that we've experienced down to here. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go home today, wherever you go, 
Jesus said, the reason you've been able to experience the grace of my life and just a glimpse, a taste of heaven is that you could bring it to everywhere you go. And the only way you can do that is when you know the works of the enemy have been destroyed and you have the power to overcome and to live in his victory. But he came to make a way home for us as well. The Father God, not only did he create a home, not only did we lose our home, not only did he come to our home, but ultimately Jesus is leading us home. Turn to John chapter 14, if you would. Ultimately, Jesus wants to lead us home. John chapter 14. I was in second grade. This is the first passage that I ever memorized. I love this passage. I, won, I got my first Bible when I was in second grade. That's because I memorized like about six or seven passages. I would say to you, be memorizing the scriptures that are in the program. You want to grow? Begin to get God's word into your heart and your soul. Well, verse four, chapter 14, verse 1 says this. Jesus is getting ready to check out. He's hours from being betrayed and dying. So his brain trust, the disciples are a little bit nervous. And this is what he says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Why? Because we're the same. We're one. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I am going there to prepare a place for you. Why? And I go to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. With me. And that you also may be where I am. I want to be at home with you. Now and into eternity. You know the way and the place to where I am going. Well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And then he goes on to say the reason is, is because you've seen me. See, Jesus is talking in the context of dying and ultimately going to heaven to be with him. And he makes these bold statements, easy to miss, but he makes these bold statements that says, I am. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Well, let's look at those. I want, I want to talk about the truth first. See, a lot of people in other religions have a major bone of contention with Christ followers. You've probably heard it. What is it? Oh, you're so exclusive. See, we have this inclusive message that says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it's exclusive how? Well, Jesus is the only way to the Father. So you say, oh, you guys are so, oh, so narrow. Well, I guess so. Jesus kind of did make it narrow, didn't he? In Matthew 7, 13, he said, narrow is the way which leads to life eternal and broad is the path that leads to destruction. But when people want to get on your case for that, just kind of clarify and say, I didn't say it. It's Jesus. You know, take it up with him because it's he's the one. But again, you, you, we have to believe that he is the truth. No other person, no other God, no other deity. You take Confucius out of Confuciusism, you still have his great teachings. 
or sayings. You take Buddha out of Buddhism. He never claimed to raise again. It's just the Buddhist teaching. But you take Christ out of Christianity, all you have is, well, anity and no hope. Think about it. Jesus asked this question to his disciples. He said, who, who do people say that I am? And they begin to give all these answers. And finally he says, who do you say that I am? And then, of course, we love Peter because he steps up and he gets the correct answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And see, while not everybody agrees or accepts Peter's answers, no one should avoid Jesus' question. You're here today. You can't avoid this question. Who, who do you say that Jesus is? C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell do a wonderful job of this, and I'm not going to unpack all the depth that they do, but there's really three responses to Jesus. Number one, was he a liar? See, Jesus made his God claims of deity. But was he a liar because he really knew he wasn't God? Well, if, if he did, then he was lying, and he was history's best con or flim-flam man because he took that to the grave and, quote, into the lie of the resurrection if he was lying. And if he was lying, he literally become the greatest hypocrite of all time because he told others to live honestly, truthfully, in every way. So really, it, it, it nullifies and voids any of his teaching. And also, he would probably be the ultimate expression of evil because he's telling all of these people, put your eternal destiny in one thing, me. How, how evil is that? Oh, yeah, I'm just going to believe him. Oh, it's a lie. Oh, I'm, I'm going to hell for a lie. So, so was he a liar? Someone who lived as Jesus lived, taught as Jesus taught, and died as Jesus died, then established a movement on the truth of his resurrection, probably couldn't have been a liar. But, but some, some still believe that today. But, but that argument is still a little bit faulty because, well, some people say, well, was he a lunatic? If out of the realm of thinking that Jesus could be a liar, then could he have mistakenly thought that he was God? I mean, after all, it's possible to be sincere and still be wrong, correct? Maybe that was Jesus. I mean, consider for someone to think he is God, especially in a culture like theirs that was monotheistic. And then to tell others their eternal destiny is dependent upon believing in him. Listen, that is no slight fantasy. That's big time. I'm God. Believe in me. You do that today. You will be considered the lunatic fringe. Back in that day, they literally had hundreds of people claiming to be the Messiah. It was very common. But notice Jesus captured the hearts and minds of millions who strived to order calibrate their lives to his. They stake their eternal destiny on him. And literally thousands throughout history have given their life based on a lunatic? See, the other option really is he is the Lord God Almighty who reigns forever and ever. People want to say, well, I'll give you that he was a great teacher or this good moral man. Um, I don't think so. 
There's a lot of people who believe that today. You tell me that you would consider me a good teacher if I stood up here and said, I am God, and I will save you. That's pretty incongruent. And to make claims of deity that I have been since Abraham was, I am the word that was from the beginning. A good teacher, loved ones, don't make those kind of claims. He must either be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of all. And the evidence is clearly in favor that he is God. And that he is the truth. And he's also the life. Now, I'm going to tweak you a little bit here. See, people love practical help, principles from the word. And, 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 and I spend a lot of time just developing principles for my life from the word. People come and they hear talks on marriage or finances and they get their they're raising their children or breaking habits and becoming, quote, more holy. And they go, wow, that's good stuff. That really worked in my life. And what do they say? So it must be true. Why? Well, because it worked. So they begin to build their lives on a few principles. But I'm going to tell you where I'm getting challenged. See, without establishing a healthy and changed worldview for living and for life based on the life, a life commitment to Christ, you know what? Your commitment will only be as deep as the commitment that you have to any other product it helps you. What do you do when a product doesn't work anymore? You go get a better one. You go get a different one. You go try something that you hope will make a difference. See, allegiance to something that makes life easier and more manageable should never be confused with genuine conversion. Because when you're genuinely converted to Christ, loved ones, listen to this. It is at the heart of surrender to the creator God of the cosmos. It's full surrender. Everything about me, everything I do becomes yours. Some know this, that sometimes Christian morality and living works, listen, only in the long run, doesn't it? When you see life from eternity, it's obvious that it does work to what? To be honest, to be unselfish, to be chaste, and to be humble. But how many of us would readily admit that in the short term, in the short run, practicing chastity may keep a person alone for years? Because I'm going to do it God's way. Because I'm his child and he loves me. And he's got the best for me. But my heart breaks because I'm alone. How about practicing honesty at work? That may be a severe impediment to career advancement. And see, so many people, when they begin to see that, quote, this thing doesn't work 
in their time frame, in the way they want it, what do they do? Uh, they begin to bail because they're looking for a better product. See, Jesus says that through him you'll find your life. But guess how you'll find it? He says before you find it, you've got to lose your life in Christ. You've got to surrender. You've got to be willing to give up. You've got to be willing to change. See, Christ will only work for you if you are true to him, whether he works for you or not. See, you must not come to Jesus Christ on the basis of him fulfilling something, although he will ultimately fulfill you. But you come to him because his life is true. If you seek him in order to get your needs met, guess what? Not only will you not get your needs met, but you will not meet the real Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to help you with your agenda. But you see, I got to tell you, sometimes we preach that. Oh, Jesus wants to help me with my family, with my money, with all of this. He does, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is that you would find your fulfillment in him, being with him, and experience his life because he's your creator and redeemer. Do you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000? All the people are going, whoa, yeah, whoa, this is cool. And about verse 15, after they've had their fill of wonder bread and cold cuts, it says this. It says the people came to take him by force and to make him king. Because that's what they expected Jesus, the Messiah, to be the king that's going to overthrow Rome. But what does he do? It says he withdrew. Kind of the idea of he just disappeared. He was gone. Can I tell you something? That's what happens in so many people's lives today. They think they can, oh, Jesus, he helped my marriage, now help my finances. And when he doesn't, but you want to force that on him and to make sure that he does that, and then you say, Jesus, fill up my bank account, and he does it, two things will happen. You'll be greatly disappointed because your expectations were met, and Jesus will quickly move away from you because he says, I'm not here to fulfill your agenda and to be your king. I am the king of kings. And when you come to me, everything, everything defers to me. And it is not truth because it works. Because it is true, it will eventually work. Truth won't change. See, the real question is, is Jesus really the Son of God to you? Is he who he said he is? Is he your way, your truth, your life? Has he really died for you because you know you're a sinner. And you need to be at one with God. And you can't do it. You can't cover yourself on your own with good works and good deeds. See, when you understand that, loved ones, who cares what he asks you to do? You do it. Because everything now defers to his lordship, his kingship. It's his agenda, not yours. We love the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and we all say, 
first line, it's not about you. But oh, Lord, how hard it is to live that. It is not about you or me. It's about him and his agenda for our lives. Christian life and morality is not true because it works. It works ultimately because it's true, because it's built on the true one. And that's what God comes to do, loved ones, is to lead us home. Not only is he the truth and the life, but he's also the way. Let me talk to you as we finish up about the way. You're picking up this theme, God wants to be with us. He wants to be at home with us. Ultimately, what does he want to do? He wants to call us home, his creation. George Carlin did a riff. Some of you probably heard it, the difference between football and baseball. Let me share some of it. Football is played on a gridiron. Baseball is played in a park. Football players wear helmets. Baseball players wear caps. In football, the specialist come in to kick something. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve somebody. Baseball has the seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. Baseball gets extra innings. Football has sudden death. In football, the runner gives you the stiff arm. In baseball, the runner gets to slide. Whee! But the biggest difference is, is that football, the main object is military. The battle is fought in the trenches, the field. The general, who is the quarterback, seeks to uh, evade the blitz and soften up the enemy with pounding ground attack and aerial bombardment. Sometimes he uses bullet passes. Then when he thinks it will work, he goes for the bomb to riddle the enemy's defenses and penetrate the end zone. Violent. Warfare. In baseball, the object is always to go home. To go home and be safe. Sometimes we forget that, that that's what Jesus ultimately wants to do in our lives. His desire is to bring us safely home. Why? To be with him forever. See, Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. Washington Post article of April 2000 said this, 88% of the people in America believe in heaven. Unfortunately, most people don't live like it because we hang on to everything here so tightly. When a loved one dies that goes to heaven, sometimes in our grief we can't let it go and rejoice that he's with Jesus, knowing that ultimately that's where we get to be as well. See, Paul, once he experienced a taste of heaven, as he says in 2 Corinthians, that was the focus of much of his life and writing. He even said this in Colossians 3, to set your affections on things above. I wonder if a reason that we complain about our environment and we worry so much about our lack of time is because really we were created for another place. Our environment here is so imperfect. The reason we get tired of it is because we, well, we were created for heaven, ultimately. We have so much trouble with time. We never have enough. It gets wasted. It gets used up. I wish I had another hour in the day. Blah, 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 blah. I wonder if it's because really in our heart and our life, because uh, Scripture says that eternity is set in our heart. I wonder if it's, well, we really realize, well, heaven doesn't have clocks. It's eternity. And maybe our heart 
really is yearning, looking toward that. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if I find myself a desire with no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was mad for a, that I was made for another world. Boy, doesn't that make sense? This isn't our ultimate place, loved ones. Thief on the cross, last minute heart change. He has this altar call on the cross. He looks over at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me today. And what does Jesus do? He turns with him and he says these words. I assure you today, you will be what? With me in paradise. You'll be at home with me. Jesus is speaking to the churches back then in the first century. The revelation through the apostle John, Revelation 3.20. What does it say? Jesus, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. See, I'm, he says, I'm not knocking to bring a burden to you, but to be a blessing with you and to share with you my life, my goodness. See, if you're following the reading plan, you just finished Revelation. We just finished Revelation on Friday. This is from Revelation chapter 19 where it talks about that Jesus is going to be on this big white steed. And there's going to be the sword of judgment. Not a literal sword, but that's how we wanted to picture it. But the sword is the word that's going to come and it is going to bring the final judgment on the nations at that time. And literally, millions of people will die. Now hear this. See, I can talk about the love of God and the Lamb of God who comes to save his people from their sins, but never, ever forget the Lamb of God who died for us and rose again is going to come again as the warrior king to balance all scales, to make a final judgment, and to bring everything that he said he would to pass. And that means heaven and hell. That's what he's about. He's the Lamb of God. But he's the Lion of Judah. He is the conquering king that will come and mete out universal judgment. Revelation 21 one through five, after that happens, after chapter 19, because it says in chapter 19, he's going to have this wedding feast of the Lamb where we all come together and we have this big banquet. Happens right before this takes place. And we're up at heaven. And literally, it says heaven opens up and we're going to be sitting there watching him begin to execute judgment through the word that he speaks. But notice what Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, that's us, adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and I will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be 
with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things passed away. Wow. Wow. Then you know what eternity is about? Being at home with God. Wow. I kind of can't wait. People say, well, how can I enjoy heaven when some of my family won't be there? Two things. Be about sharing Jesus with them now, praying for them. Every one of my journals, I'm just getting ready to start a new journal this week. Every one of my journals now starts with a picture of my boys that I'm praying for them. And it ends with a picture of my boys that I'm praying for them to make sure they're in heaven with me. That's what we have to be about while we're here. Well, Pastor, I've had family members, loved ones that have already passed away that I know they're not in heaven. Okay, well, this is your hope in heaven. Isaiah 65, 17 says this, The former shall not be remembered, no shall it come to mind. Talking about in the end. Jesus says here, uh, there'll be no crying, there'll be no pain, there'll be no mourning. When you get to heaven, you will know people, but somehow God will delete the loss of those people from your mind and memory. And everything will focus on who Jesus is, what he has done, and the people that are there. But until then, we've got to be about reaching people for Jesus Christ. He is coming back. Critical questions as the worship team comes. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Do you know him? And ultimately, are you at home with him today? Are you at home with him today? That you feel comfortable in his presence because you have received him, not only as your lamb of God, but as the conquering king, the one that's defeated the enemy and will ultimately bring justice to humanity. I want you just to bow your heads for a moment and think about that. Who is Jesus to you today? We don't live differently because of following just commandments. We live differently because we serve the God who says, I want you to be my child. I want to be at home in you and with you so ultimately I can bring you home to be with me. If you've never received Jesus or maybe you've been kind of away from him and you know he's you're not at home with him today. Just invite him back today. Say, Jesus, come. Be a part of my life. I want to reconnect with you or I want to connect with you for the first time. Be my lamb of God. Forgive me. My sins. I want to be at home with you today. Just say that simple prayer. If that's you, then just take your connections card and just on your program and fill it out and just say, I made this decision today. Put it in the basket in the back as you leave.
all of us, friends, if we are at home with Jesus, we have to be about the King's business. Growing up in Him because we love Him and walk with Him and being open to reach people for Him. Let's stand together. Father, we want to come today and <clears throat> and be what you're about. I thank you that from the opening of Genesis till the end of Revelation, the whole focus is to be with us and to establish a home for us from the beginning to the end. Let that motivate us to see how much you love us, not as servants but as children of God. I pray, Lord, that would be the heart of every Creeksider. That we would grow in the love and grace that teaches us how to live because we're children of God. Thank you for that today, Lord. Pray your blessing upon these precious people. Fill them with your spirit, God. Fill them with Jesus. Give us more and more of Jesus. I thank you for that in your name. Amen.